fixate on code episode 12. Oh yes, Larry Boiter here and you're listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. And today I'll be chatting with Peter Muller. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Well, you're welcome. Peter is a corporate entrepreneur at Mobile Life, the innovation hub of Danske Bank in Copenhagen. Peter helps maintain Asset Graph, an optimization framework for web pages and applications, and is also a core contributor to Mocker.js. On top of that, Peter was also involved in organizing Copenhagen.js, a monthly meetup for lovers of all things JavaScript. Peter, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Sure thing. Um, so, uh, corporate entrepreneur, first of all, it's a nice title, but I'm actually just a web developer. Um, <laughs> I've been in the game for uh, professionally for 15 years, so I've seen a few things here and there. Um, I'm a, a father of one. I have a wife. I like to drink beers with friends and code open source. Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, what are you most passionate about as a developer? What were the steps that got you to where you are today? Yeah, so I'm definitely most mostly passionate about uh, foundations, like uh, all the all the core foundations that we build the web uh, upon. So that means the web itself. But I'm very focused on tooling and getting abstractions of tooling correct. Uh, so that's uh, that's the thing I usually uh, uh, fall back on when I get ideas for for open source. And uh, yeah, basically got here by uh, I started actually as a supporter in a web hosting company. And it turned out that uh, there was a gap between a Java developer and a designer where a web developer could fit in. And uh, I kind of fit into that slot. And nine years later, uh, <laughs> I had uh, a lot of experience with uh, building work efficiency apps like webmail, calendar, address books, stuff like that. Um, a lot of build tooling, a lot of performance focus, uh, internationalization. Um, moved on to work in uh, three different startups after that uh, over four years where I learned a lot about uh, agile processes and, and mostly about myself, I guess, on how, <laughs> well, like, what, what are my priorities uh, because I didn't really revisit that a lot uh, during the nine years at the same company. Okay, so Peter, that is quite a journey and you've been involved in a whole range of different work. Can you take me to the worst experience you've ever had on a project? Yeah, so so that would be uh, I got hired specifically on uh, on on one project where uh, where the promise was basically we've we have a current setup uh, it's based on a popular front end framework uh, but we forked it and uh, and made a lot of our own extensions um, and now we're stuck in an upgrade path um, so basically the uh, the the project was uh, get on board, uh, figure out how things are built, and create a strategy that gets of uh, gets us out of it and and onto a more standard path, uh, an upgrade path again. And uh, that failed spectacularly because uh, uh, priorities changed, and basically there was uh, there was no funding, so no investment in actually putting in the uh, the time to refactor everything. How do you think the project got into that situation that funding wasn't accounted for? Well, it's uh, mostly mostly a matter of uh, priorities not being uh, not being set directly by the CTO necessarily, but uh, it was a quite a sales driven organization. So uh, um, it was uh, 
top down from uh, from the wrong perspective from my from my view at least uh, so salespeople were selling things that did not exist and then uh, suddenly there's a tight deadline and, uh, and no resources to focus on uh, on making the platform better basically yeah and a misalignment of goals and vision like that is only going to end in tears now peter in terms of getting quality work done on a daily basis which method tool or service are you using that you just hate to be without Oh, that's a good choice. So auto prefix, definitely. That's that's like a go-to tool that everybody should use as well. Uh, and I mentioned that as the most important one because I think it it is uh, the pinnacle of of tooling APIs. Um, mm. It basically does exactly what you need, uh, and you configure it by um, by telling it your end goal and not how to do it. Uh, so that, that that's uh, an inspiring piece of toolkit uh, that I inspire to do when I also do my own tools. Uh, so yeah, other really important tools that I wouldn't be without anymore is uh, Unexpected JS, which is a fairly unknown assertion framework. And uh, before before I got on board with that project, um, assertions were just assertions, like you just use whatever there is. But uh, this opened like a whole new world of uh, how to think about testing. How does it compare to something like Chai.js? Um, it's definitely, uh, there are some key points, like extending it is extremely simple compared to Chai. Uh, the error messages are much better. Uh, there's there's a difference in, in API in that you use strings instead of function calls, which weirds some people out, but the gains that you get from it are, are immense because basically when you type wrong, you can... Uh, you could do an Levenstein distance and get suggestions of what you should have typed instead. Um, and the error output is just, it's second to none. And the plugins in there are uh, crazy amazing. Like, I, it, it's amazing how you can assert on a very high level and actually move all the way up to integration tests with automated mocking. Uh, in a very terse uh, and very expressive way, and you could basically read the assertion from one into the other as a sentence. So it feels like it's an extension of the language, like it's defining a new language for how to express tests uh, on the actual implementation part. So like Gherkin for for non-programmers, I guess. So what were you using before you found Unexpected JS? Um, I I just used whatever was available, basically. Um, so assert or or chai or or uh, basically, I pretty much started focusing on testing at the same time that I learned about unexpected. So before that, I didn't do that much, uh, but I basically learned learned the process of of testing and how to how to improve that from uh, from my deep dive into into unexpected. Okay, so unexpected has had a massive improvement on your ability to write terse and extensible tests. Where in your daily work do you still meet frustration? Where do you think there's still room for things to be done in a more effective way? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, so I said my, 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 my big love uh, and focus is tooling and, and I have a massive problem with how, how tooling is, is built at the moment uh, and has been actually even uh, all the way back to the time where, where tooling even got started on, on Grunt and stuff like that. Um, I think... I think tooling in general for for uh, like bundling and uh, and web optimization and stuff like that is in uh, we've hit a local optimum and I think the abstractions we're working with are uh, limiting. Uh, 
um, which is also one of the reasons why I think Asset Graph is an extremely interesting project to work on because it actually adds a new a new abstraction that it seems nobody else is is actually working on at the moment. How does Asset Graph fit into bundling an application? Is it a replacement for something like Webpack, or is it something that can assist other bundlers? I would I would, I would yeah I would say it's uh, it it it's it fits around the other ones. So Asset Graph uh, has a concept of um, treating uh, everything as a dependency graph, where most other tools uh, only uh, apply the dependency graph abstraction to node modules or things that are comparable to node modules. Um, uh, Webpack, Browserify, and Rollup uh, all are very capable of, of using a dependency graph um, and using loaders to sort of get templates and CSS and images into that space. Um, and that's where I think the abstraction sort of it doesn't work that, that well anymore because suddenly you're writing custom overrides for your, uh, for your require statements or for your import statements, which basically means that at the point you require or import a non-node module, uh, you are fully dependent on that explicit implementation of your tool and the configuration of your tool in order for your code to be interoperable in any way. Mm. So, as a graph basically fits uh, around this, it, it, it says that everything is is uh, is a dependency graph. HTML is the start of your dependency graph uh, and can point at CSS, which can point at uh, images, which can uh, and it goes on like that. Like as a graph has implemented uh, high level object models for I think somewhere between twenty and thirty types of assets or subtypes of assets and special behaviors for relations between them. So an, an HTML link to an image uh, behaves different than a CSS link to an image. Um, and then you have this, this, this high-level graph model, which gives you an immense expressive power because uh, suddenly you're able to work with the knowledge of relations between assets instead of just assets uh, gathered from the file system or as a list in a manifest or somehow. So so basically how this could work together would be that you could start out with your webpack or your rollup or whatever uh, and get your JavaScript bundle and then you could point asset graph at the resulting output and it then takes all of all of the entire scope of the website and treats it as as one thing which it will then optimize uh, in a very holistic way. Okay, now that's quite a deviation from how users of Webpack are accustomed to bundling projects and managing assets. But I suppose once you get introduced to a, a technique on such a grand scale, you sort of forget that there's, there's probably other solutions which may even be better. Now, Peter, besides Asset Graph, what new projects, libraries, or frameworks are you most excited about at the moment? Well, Asset Graph is only new because people haven't learned about it yet. It's like seven or eight years old by now. So What? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've been around since Node zero two or 4 or something like that. Oh, um, uh, well, back then it wasn't usable for anybody except us, but uh, we've tried to do a lot of work on making it actually uh, compatible for people. But yeah, what's, what's exciting? Uh, I think probably the most exciting new idea I've, I've come upon recently is, uh, is uh, Svelte, the... Uh, the new disappearing framework, I think uh, Rick Harris is, is, is calling it, where uh, you basically can write UI like you would with, uh, 
with React or with Ember, and uh, the compiler compiles away the overhead of library code, which means that you get extremely small packages. And that's very exciting, I think. Wow, that's definitely worth looking into. Now, Peter, with all the new languages and libraries that are coming out, how do you make time to keep up to date with all of these developments? And how do you decide on what to learn and when to make time to learn? Uh, let's start with the last question first. Uh, how do I, uh, how do I <laughs> figure out what to learn and when? Uh, that's a very chaotic <laughs> approach with me, I think. Um, I had some, uh, some nice advice by a friend on how to, how to approach uh, learning and building and focusing stuff, and I'm only trying to implement it. So, uh, so basically, I'm on Twitter. I follow a lot of people that I've uh, either seen uh, giving talks at, at different uh, good conferences or, or, if I'm lucky, have met in person and uh, basically dive into whatever uh, projects they have been announcing or, uh, or what news there is. Um, and then I try to specifically key, keep up to date with things that might be related to anything Asset Graph uh, related. So anytime... Um, an update to to specifications for some sort of uh, web specification comes out. We need to basically uh, model it and imp implement support for it because, um, yeah, that's uh, how the model works. So there's a there's some work to keep up there. I guess it's it's understood at my work that I use part of my time for that. It's also what makes me productive because I also have this network. Uh, feeding me back information very quickly. So instead of having to know everything up front, I have a good network that I can just ask and then they can point me at the right direction. So I guess I make time mostly at work and then uh, whatever time there's left after the kid has been put to bed and uh, the wife has fallen asleep and then I have a, an hour or two on Twitter and on, on Google or whatever. <laughs> so which specific aspect about programming have you learned that has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? Uh, testing, definitely. Um, being... Being able to to write pieces of code that are small enough to reason about, um, and actually implementing the test for them, that's that has been a, a big change to how I've been programming. And then uh, functional programming, like I haven't I haven't done any real work uh, on trying to learn functional program programming, but just picked up like a few paradigms uh, here and there when people have uh, introduced me to them. And that has made a massive change on how I perceive um, uh, writing good reusable functions and how to avoid side effects. And, and that has basically been a massive improvement on the stability of, of what I've produced. So I wouldn't say I've, I, I'm not producing faster, but I'm producing more stable. So I never have to go back and, uh, and update things. Uh, and when I do, it's usually easier to do because the code is uh, not as complex anymore. Are there any functional programming resources that you've found particularly helpful? Uh, no, I've been. <laughs> I, I'm not reading a lot, uh, at least not books or, or or specific resources like that. So I usually just learn by having discussions and by interacting with other people and reading their code and uh, picking up bits from that. So it's all over the place. 
but it works somehow. <laughs> and the shift from imperative to declarative code has made a huge impact on the way that I write code. And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. Peter, I'm about to throw some quick fire questions your way. Let's do this. What is the best advice about programming you've ever received? Uh, I think uh, I think write everything twice. Uh, I was fascinated by uh, a talk at uh, that I saw at JSConf EU by Sebastian uh, Mark uh, Markbo Mark Badge from Facebook. Um, so basically, write everything twice uh, or more until you can understand what abstraction you actually need and then abstract it. Which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? Um, being detail-oriented and uh, above average uh, as a developer at communicating about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think communication can often take a bit of a backseat with us. If you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a, that's a soft point. Uh, I don't read so many books, so uh, <laughs> I think the last, one, the last programming book I've read is probably uh, uh, Crocs Ford, uh, The Good Parts. <laughs> <laughs> So, Peter, who in the front-end world do you look up to and who's doing work that's really inspiring? Uh, there's a guy who I've worked with, uh, an ex-colleague called Andreas Lind uh, Peterson. Uh, he's uh, Papandreou on GitHub. And uh, he is doing tons of really, really core functionality tools, uh, express middlewares, like internationalization tools. It's... Some of those things that are not appreciated enough, uh, but I'm extremely uh, inspired by the amount of good quality work that he can crack out over time. It's amazing. Mm. So let's switch it up a little bit here. Imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever writing code. With your knowledge of tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? I think that that's a difficult one. If we're talking about web programming... Um, I would recommend finding a mentor that is passionate and can cut through all the crap. Um, I don't believe in uh, in schools' abilities to uh, keep up and 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 teach web development. So definitely find someone in the industry that is knowledgeable and uh, and knows what not to focus on. Do you have any tips on how to go about finding such a mentor? Uh, that's a tough one, but uh, I think there's a lot of really, really qualified people on uh, on GitHub and at conferences. I really enjoy going to conferences and uh, and meeting all of these uh, thought leaders, uh, quote unquote, um, who are really, really nice people and are extremely valuable in uh, in and experienced and can give you a lot of good advice. And Peter, let's wrap things up today with a top tip from you on how to work smart, the best way that we can connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. All right, so the best way to work smart uh, is an advice that I sadly don't follow all the time myself. Uh, treat <laughs> every task as a queue instead of a stack. And then once in a while, go through the queue and reorder by priority. Uh, so basically, do the things that you plan to do instead of just taking the newest one all the time. Um, I'm still working on actually implementing that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you can find me best. Uh, I have a weird Twitter handle with underscores, so the easiest way to find me is uh, mntr.dk, which is my my website. In the bottom, there's contact information, and I am uh, Munter on on GitHub. To everyone out there, you've been hanging with Peter Muller and Larry Buerta. 
head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been talking about today. And of course, head over to GitHub and give Asset Graph a spin. Build your applications web-friendly. Peter, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. 